Welcome to the Making Headway Podcast, a podcast for brain injury survivors by brain injury survivors, providing resources and camaraderie for anyone recovering from any type of brain injury, with your hosts, Aaron Martin and Mariah Morgan. Hi there, welcome to the Making Headway Podcast. I'm Mariah. And I'm Aaron. And today we're here with some really interesting info to cover. A lot of our listeners have reached out to say that they have had multiple concussions or PCS, and so we really wanted to make sure we covered the concussion territory. So we're here today with Matt Campbell, who's the clinical director at the Midwest Concussion Clinic, and we're really glad to have him. Matt, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. And one thing that Aaron and I chatted about pretty recently is that we realized that a lot has changed since we were young playing sports in like high school and we're told if you get a concussion, just go home and make sure you don't go to sleep. And I, yeah. <laughs> I would love to hear from you what's changed. Um, we'd love to know like how you even know you have a concussion in the first place and we'll take it from there. Okay. So pretty much concussions have changed and done almost a, a 180 over the last 18 months. You know, it went from everybody just putting in a dark room and not doing anything for two weeks, making sure you're not falling asleep right afterwards, to now that research is good enough and they started to evaluate, hey, maybe we're not doing the best we can with that, prolonged cognitive rest and putting people in a dark room and, and avoiding causes or symptom increasing activities actually makes us worse. So right now, if, if somebody's going out and being treated with the whole sit and rest uh, mindset, they're actually doing themselves a disservice and, and taking longer to recover. As far as the second side of things, you know, the how do you know if you have a concussion? Your basic symptoms, you, your headache, dizziness, um, balance and, and walking difficulties, memory loss, difficulty concentrating, mental fogginess. Those are all big ones that we hear every day, you know, with the main symptoms being uh, headache, dizziness, and that foggy feeling that they have. Which Aaron and I are both familiar with, <laughs> the brain fog for yeah. sure. Yeah. <laughs> Although mine's a totally different source. I think yeah. Mariah's I injury, she had an impact. So yeah. not only a subdural yeah. hematoma, but a concussion too. Correct. Yeah. Correct. You know, what's funny is they never really talked to me at the hospital about a concussion, which it's pretty clear that I did have a concussion yeah. as part of having my head slammed on the pavement. But <laughs> right. They, right. they had a lot of other things to deal with, but they never really yeah. shared a whole lot about the concussion with me. So yeah. that's something that we're fighting with here locally is, you know, with the the emergency departments, you know, they do the, the scans, they do your CT scans, they do their quick evaluations, concussions aren't going to show up. So mm -hmm. if everything shows up clear, they're like, hey, you might have a concussion. And on the 12th page of the paperwork in the discharge packet, it says you should probably follow up with somebody uh, because you might have a concussion. <laughs> One of our recent ED department patients came in and said, well, we called the head nurse and the, they referred us to the CDC website and said, hey, here's some information if you need it. Um, <laughs> Good luck. So it's on you. Basically. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's that's something that we're personally we're trying to work on with with our local ED department um, groups and just saying, hey, whether they're evaluated by us or somebody else, make sure that you're you're actually bringing up the concussion and saying, hey, you need to be evaluated at some point by somebody who knows what they're doing. Yeah. So what does an evaluation look like? I mean, how how do you evaluate someone who comes in? So from us, just like many of the other uh, emergency groups or medical offices, we take a detailed history. We sit down and listen to, you know, what happened. For a lot of people, when we talk about, you know, concussions and telling them that, hey, you don't actually have to get hit in the head to sustain a concussion, they kind of freak out and say, wait a minute, what do you mean? You know, I didn't hit my head, but why do I have a concussion? Well, because that whiplash force that goes through, you know, we generate enough force through movement that 
it shears the inside portion of the brain's axons and it starts to slide them apart and that's what a concussion is so we don't necessarily have to have that impact as far as what our diagnostics and what we go through is we do two of the main tests with everybody we do our scat 5 which is our sideline concussion assessment tool it's considered the gold standard in concussion diagnosis for most of what we do in the clinic that one doesn't tell us a whole lot because by the time we're seeing patients you know they're multiple days post-injury it doesn't necessarily show up with anything on the cognitive side of things at that point you know a lot of times with our patients they're getting in perfect scores of 30 out of 30 they're coming into us post-injury at 28s 29s so it doesn't show us a whole lot on the cognitive side of things but it's still the gold standard you know in anything else with with litigation and liability if you don't do the gold standard and something bad happens you don't want to be the group that didn't do the gold standard so yeah, we right. do that one. <laughs> right. uh, the second test that we do that actually tells us a whole lot more of what we're doing is what we call the VOMS assessment so the vestibular ocular motor screen it's a fancy way of when we sit down with our patients I explain to them that hey you know I'm going to make you focus on some objects and shake your head side to side and up and down making you rotate at the hips we check conversions and divergence so their depth perceptions Uh, And we also do our horizontal and vertical saccades and smooth pursuits exercises. That one is one that tells us the most. And then we also do a modified clinical sensory and balance test. It's similar to the best test, which is the balance error scoring system. It's a modified balance testing that just does a quick, you know, double stance, heels and toes together side by side, shaking our head side to side with our eyes open, stepping up on the foam, eyes open, eyes closed, shake your head side to side. Uh, it's just a quick thing that we throw into our SCAT 5. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't totally understand how the body finds its balance and how much that can be thrown off by mm-hmm. an impact. I certainly, I mean, I have vertigo after mine, but I also had some serious balance issues yeah. as well. So yeah, it makes sense that like a major impact would sort of knock you off kilter a little <laughs> right, bit um, right. or off your usual center. Yeah. Okay, cool. And what do you what do you do when someone comes in who has had multiple concussions? Do you treat that situation differently? Do they get the same battery of tests, but you're watching more carefully, or how how does that work? So when we see patients with multiple concussions, our treatment plan and diagnostics stay the same, but we're a lot more conservative. We start looking at okay, you know, are these minor tics that may be normal to the individual? Or are these concussion impairments? When you're doing a lot of things with the, with the eyes, and you know, I tell our patients all the time that the eyes don't lie. Uh, they can tell us everything that we need to know, but at certain points, you know, when, you're, when you're evaluating a 12-year-old kid and they, you're doing a convergence test and moving the pen into their nose and back out, they lack the motor control of tracking all the way in and tracking all the way back out. So is that the fact that they're 12 years old and they don't have full control of their eyes yet? Or is it a, a, a side effect of the injury itself or an impairment because of the injury? So when we see young patients or we see patients with multiple concussions, we, we become a lot more conservative. All of our patients are always treated and, and released when they're medically cleared, you know, when they're medically healthy again. But we become a lot more conservative in terms of what we clear them to do right away. And that's another one of the big things that has changed in concussion management is we try to put them back into as much as they can, as safely as they can, as quickly as possible. Ah. The the psychological side of concussions becomes a big deal. I mean, both of you have dealt with a long-term brain injury. Uh, The psychological side of things of, you know, waking up every day, I feel the same way. I feel terrible. Nothing feels right. Why do I feel this way? It's really easy to fall into that. Why am I not getting better? What am I doing wrong? When will this go away? Is this forever? So we start to look at the psychological side of things when you have somebody that only identifies as a high school athlete. Nothing more important than high school Mm -hmm. sports, Mm -hmm. right? So if you start to look at 
if you start to look at a football player that, okay, I'm going to the NFL, uh, I'm a sophomore in high school, I'm 5'8", 110 pounds, nobody's ever told me that I'm not going to be big enough, I'm going, and that's what's going to happen. Right. So when you take that away from them, and you know, concussion's great, they heal themselves relatively quickly. The research has been 10 to 21 days, it's now shifting from, you know, 10 to 21 to 21 to 34 range, depending on the, the, in, the research that you look at, you start to look at, okay, great. What happens when they don't get better? Or what happens when you have that athlete that's, uh, I'm only a football player and you take their football season away? You know, the old school was you take football away, you take school away, you take their cell phone away, you take their computer away, you take everything from them and say, hey, good luck not getting depressed. Good luck not (laughs) getting sad. Good luck not going through all this. You know, so we start to integrate things back into, uh, very rarely do we keep um, patients out of school. We send them back to school with learning academic accommodations. We, we have a full return to learning protocol that we use to put patients back into school. We've been lucky that in the area that we're in, we're in, you know, we're in Northeast Indiana. We're in a big hub of good hospital systems, great schools. Everybody's been accommodating to, hey, somebody's gonna step in that's not a teacher and say, you need to teach them this way. For the most part, they've been really accommodating on, hey, you know, there's something wrong that I don't know. Let's listen to what they're saying which has been a blessing in itself, uh, not having to go in and fight administration that say, hey, this kid that For can't sure. remember what day of the week it is needs help in school Yeah, has been great. That's excellent. It's been great. Well, and so nice to hear that the mental health side of things mm-hmm. is being very clearly addressed because that's something that gets neglected a whole lot with brain injury. And right. um, also I would assume with concussion is people right. can't see it. So they assume there's not a, a, much of a problem. Obviously there's the right. inner workings of the brain, but the sort of depression relation is a pretty fascinating thing that yeah. I didn't know about pre-brain injury right. at all, um, but I certainly grappled with it myself. So, you know, yeah. a lot of our brain injury patients, they're, they're invisible injury warriors, right? They're, they're dealing with something that nobody else sees. When you've got a kid that's standing on the sidelines or somebody walking down the street in a knee immobilizer, you say, hey, something's probably wrong with the kid's knee. That's why they're not playing. When you see somebody on the sideline that's maybe being held out for a concussion, they sit there and look at them and go, okay, is it academic related? Is it drugs and alcohol related? Are they suspended? Is it disciplinary? What's wrong with this kid? And unless they're wearing you know, sunglasses on the sidelines on a Friday night in the middle of the night, the, the first thing you think of is not concussion. You think of all the bad things that come with it. Uh, Absolutely. And in yeah, today's yeah. social media world, that can be enough to derail a kid's chances to get a scholarship that if, you know, they see Sally sitting on the sidelines for the 12th game in a row, uh, she's probably lost uh, half her season because of a disciplinary issue. We're going to pull our, our scholarship offers or we're just not going to talk to that person anymore. Wow. Um, you hope they do their due yeah. diligence and understand. But, you know, it's something that as an invisible injury, you don't get a chance to see. You can't look at somebody and say, oh, yeah, they're suffering from a concussion. Let's let's try to treat them right. Yeah. It's like, yeah, we got to take their word for it. I never thought about the judgment that comes with mm-hmm. it and the impacts that that can have. That's crazy. Right. Yeah, particularly in high school. That's, right. yeah. that's tough. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. With, yeah. with everything in high school, it's, you know, you get the kids that, oh, they just don't want to play. They just, they're afraid. Mm-hmm. They don't want to play the sport anymore. They just want the T-shirt that goes with the team. And hearing that over and over and over again from teammates that you think are friends and family saying, oh, you just don't want to play. You're soft. You can't do it. You're weak. That's enough right there to draw anybody down, let alone somebody whose brain's healing itself and, and is physically firing slower than anything else is and you know, mimicking a depressed brain as it is. And then you add all of that into it and it's, you just see the psychological effect pulled down on an athlete very, very quickly. Yeah. 
Yeah. So how, what um, types of testing and how do you tell when they're able to get back in? So we put it once everybody's, you know, we've gone through the initial evaluation. They, we, we do our therapy, we, we do our treatments. And when they're ready to go back, the good thing about Indiana is we've got the IHSAA, which is our high school association, the NCAA, the NAIA, they all have rules in place on when somebody can go back and what they can do. So for us to clear them to even get to that point, we put them through all, you know, the same testing again. We put them through the SCAT-5 test again to make sure that there's been no drop-offs. Even if they come in at a 28, we want to see them improve to a certain extent if we can, but making sure that there's no drop-off. Okay. And then we, we repeat, you know, the balance testing and, and we put them through uh, the first day of any return to play protocol in our office. So in our office, you put them on a treadmill. A lot of times we walk them on a 10 degree incline for five minutes, try to get that heart rate elevated. And then I do a lot of hand-eye coordination testing. We do balance testing. We go through a full balance progression of double stance, modified tandem, tandem, single leg stance, all while doing multiple exercises at the same time. So multiple task exercises where, okay, you're balancing on your left foot. I'm throwing a tennis ball to your right hand, making sure you're catching the tennis ball on your right hand and everything going all the way through your full range of motion in your visual fields. We do sports-specific return testing. So in my cabinet, I've got, you know, footballs, basketball, baseball, softball. We'll put them through body position and, and physical sports-specific exercises on that first day to see if, okay, great, focusing on a target in front of us, you can do no problem. But now we look at, okay, are we are we looking down? Are we looking up? Are we moving and going to field a ground ball? Are we flexing at the hips and coming down and, and fielding the ball and coming up and popping up to throw? Can we handle those while we're in our testing? Uh, and you know That's we see awesome. a lot, we see a lot of workers comp patients. So uh, for a lot of my you know a lot of our protocols and our returns with teachers um, that we're seeing a lot of right now, you know we're putting targets down at weight at waist heights, like they're uh, they're standing over a, te- a patient's shoulder, or a student's shoulder, teaching, and then we're having them walk back and forth. So we do a lot of mimicking what they're going to do in their day to day activities, whether it's sports or work. You know we mimic a lot of what's actually going to happen when they return to work. So does most insurance plans pay for something like that? Because I hear athletic trainer and I immediately think athlete. Right. I don't think teacher or something else. Right. How does that work? Um, so I'm working as a physician's extender. So we bill everything on the therapy side of things are done through athletic training specific CPT codes. As okay. as athlete, you know, as athletic training evolves and as as the the group itself evolves, we're branching into more and more healthcare related fields, right? So it used to be you're only at the high school, you're only at the middle school. So there are athletic trainers everywhere now. Uh, we're in the industrial setting, we're in the, the performance and performing arts, we're in you know, the clinical side working as physicians extenders, we're in PT departments working as strength and conditioning and return to play protocols and, and sports specific therapies. And, and we're, in all intents and purposes, we're the very, very similar to PTs in terms of yeah. what we can do and what we can bill for. Now, you know, we are lumped in with the with the athlete, but that's where the good thing of working as a physician's extender comes through is our medical director has a, a practice on, you know, on his own, on his side, that he does a lot of workers' comp patients that are head injury patients, and that's kind of why our clinic started was he wanted some form of treatment option instead of saying, hey, go sit and wait, and when it doesn't get better, I have all these insurance companies coming after me saying, hey, why are these patients not getting better? Well, we... There's nothing we can really do for them. 
So yeah, that's yeah. that's another reason our why we kind of started right now. It yeah. just throws up a lot of hurdles. <laughs> yes, it does. Right? Yes, so, it does. You know, our, that's why I ask. Yeah, because yeah. I want to make sure people can get the right. treatment they need, but insurance doesn't always agree yes. with what that treatment is. Uh huh. And <laughs> the workers' comp side of things has been hard. Uh, we put together. I collect data on everything. That's one of the things that you know when you've got such a subjective injury, trying to find objective measures to your subjective injury. So insurance companies say, hey, okay, there is something going on. But, you know, on average, our workers' comp patients are coming to us 88 days after injury. So that's 88 days of sitting there not doing anything, saying, hey, yeah. this treatment that we're doing, we're treating you for whiplash. Okay, the cervical pain's gone, but the symptoms are still there. Now what? The national average of head injury patients from, you know, initial day, initial injury to full return to work is 90 days. If we're looking at we're 88 days post before we're getting anybody in, <laughs> that yeah. means I've got two days to figure it out. That, yeah, that's you know, that's right. And right now, and what does that do to the patient too? By like having that huge lag exactly. time, are you losing out on neuroplasticity? Right. Like what? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's, I mean, we talk to patients a lot of, if we'd have gotten to you early, there are some things we could have been able to fix, but you know, a lot of it's going to be mitigating what we can get, what we can't get, having realistic expectations of, okay, look, it's been 88 days you've only gotten better to a certain part. Are we going to be completely symptom-free forever? But not necessarily. Are we looking at, are we going to have more good days than bad days? Yes. Are we going to try to get you back into work so you're making your full paycheck and not trying to live off of 60 to 70% of your of your everyday paycheck for the last, you know, two months? Mm-hmm. Um, can be really, really difficult for people. And then you that also weighs on the psychological side of things. I'm going to go back early. I'm going to risk, you know, if you've got somebody as a forklift operator dealing with dizziness and and post-concussion syndrome, do you really want them lifting? Yeah. Do you really want them operating your forklift all day at your multi, you know, multi-million dollar warehouse um, that if you knock a shelf over kind of like on the office, it's all going to go everywhere. And, you know, you're, you're hoping you don't end up in another lawsuit where the shelf fell on someone. Right. Um, so what is the difference? I know, like, does every concussion turn into PCS, post-concussive syndrome? Are they two separate things? So they are two separate things. So PCS is, is the definition of it is changing, right? So it was post-concussion syndrome. More, more and more healthcare systems are pushing it to be persistent concussion symptoms because there's no real change. Like you don't heal from the concussion and then it's concussion syn- post-concussion syndrome. It's all one thing. The, the definition for PCS is symptoms that are lasting longer than two weeks in adults and that are lasting longer than 30 days in teens or adolescents. Gotcha. So it's still the same injury. The symptoms are the same. 80% of the time, the brain heals itself. What do you do in those 20% that don't? And that's where PCS comes in. Okay. So it's 20%. Interesting. Yep. I had never heard that number before, but is there any particular reason that you see um, consistently that people develop PCS versus like recovering fully or um, is it, does it feel random? So a lot of it, so for research purposes, I'll, I'll tell you what the research purposes is and then I'll tell you what we see. Um, okay. So research tells us that a lot of times it's going to be your female population. The, the females over the age of 18, between 18 and 34, generally are the ones that are more susceptible to post-concussion syndrome. And a lot of the reason being and a lot of the things that they're looking at are your hormone changes in that time. You know, we look at the hormone imbalance that happens inside the brain. When we have a concussion, it's kind of like a clearance sale, right? Everything's got to go. 
and it's got to go all at the same time. So every electrical signal fires at the same time. Every hormone that you produce inside the, in the midbrain all goes out at the same time. Every nutrient that you've got, your calcium, your sodium, it all goes out of the cells at the same time. The brain goes, oh man, something's wrong, and it starts to shut itself down. And then the brain's constantly working to try to get back to homeostasis. So if you think about in a male brain, we function right around homeostasis in terms of hormone changes and hormone balances. As a female, it's up and down and throughout wherever they are in the, their menstrual cycle, oh, wherever they, yeah, right, right. And it's you know, preaching to the choir here, but at the same time, you know, so the brain's constantly chasing that up and down move, trying to get to yeah. from homeostasis to where they should be in that time. And that's where a lot of the research is going. Um, oh, wow. So, I had no idea that hormones would have an impact oh, on yeah. that at oh, yeah. all. Right, and it's it's something that for years, you know, you think about how long concussions have been around. We've we've known about concussions for like twenty years, but it's been oh, there's nothing wrong. It's it's just you know you got your bell rung, you you got dinged. It's fine. Mm -hmm. uh, back in my day, we played through this. You know, I don't remember half my games. Mm -hmm. All of that that comes into it. We start to look at the what's call, actually going on and what's changing. The thought process is for the last 20 years, we knew about 1% of what the brain actually does. So now that imaging is getting great, research is improving, and there's all this money that's available for all these grants that are coming out. And you know, you've got great research going on in a lot of different areas, you know, Stanford, uh, Boston, Michigan, Georgia. You've got all these great concussion programs that are starting to figure out these research topics and saying, hey, you know, what are we doing that's wrong or what are we doing that needs to change? They now think the brain, we know what about 2% of what the brain does. And that's been a huge increase over what it was for a long time. So it's everything's changing. You know, they expect anywhere from forty to sixty thousand research articles to come out on concussions alone starting next year. Uh, and that's wow. that's just insane to think about all the new information that's coming out. And are they new research topics? Are they new treatment protocols? Are they evaluating what we've done, what we're doing? Um, it's it's an incredible time for research on concussions. That's certainly a positive thing to hear. <laughs> right, right. And and it's yeah. I will say, I mean, it, it is nice to know that there's so much more going into it. Like I said earlier, the difference between when we were young and playing sports and mm -hmm. you know, you just got sent home and expected to sort of rest for a couple of days and you'd be fine. Yeah, but, exactly. But it's nice that so much more attention's been given to it. So how do you treat PCS versus just a regular old concussion. Not that, that not discounting the regular. <laughs> no, 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 I get it. Is there a different treatment? <laughs> no, a lot of it stays the same. So we look at, you have to find the underlying cause. There are five main causes for PCS. Number one is the, the decreased blood flow to the brain. So the cerebral arteries, when we have that brain injury, it sends all of our electrical signals out and then the brain physically closes down the cerebral arteries while it starts to repair itself because the brain wants to take over and say, hey, I'm not going to increase the heart rate or anything until I figure out what's going on inside my, my area before I start affecting everything else. One of the second main causes is the cervicogenic side of things. So the neck, the cervical spine, all of our soft tissue. The force required to sustain a concussion is double what's required to sustain whiplash. So all concussions have some form of soft tissue injury to the cervical spine. And a lot of our PCS patients, you know, they don't realize anything is sore in their neck until you start palpating around and you're saying, okay, does this hurt? Does this hurt? And you get all the way up underneath the base of the skull and you start poking around in some of the soft tissue in there and they really flinch and like, well, that's my head. No, your neck comes all the way up into the base of your skull. That's, it's still soft mm -hmm. tissue work yeah. in the back of your neck. So that's what we see a lot of yeah. is the manual therapy and the cervicogenic side of things. 
Your third okay. major cause is the vestibular ocular relationship. So for us, we do a lot of visual exercises, vision exercises, your smooth pursuits, your horizontal saccades, your convergence, pen push-ups. We do a lot of visual therapy in terms of laying it on or lacing it into what we're already doing with you know, our vestibular therapy or our balance training. It's, it's all got some form of visual therapy that goes into it. Hmm. The, uh, the fourth cause is inflammation. Just like every other injury in your body, inflammation becomes a big problem. I'm not a dietitian, so I don't make dietary recommendations, but I make suggestions that, you know, we want to avoid all of our inflammatory foods, right? We want to avoid, avoid our sugar, our unnatural sugars, so our processed sugars. You want to avoid your trans fats. You want to avoid all of your, you know, your alcohol and, and things that are going to increase inflammation inside the body. You know, we make those recommendations to our PCS patients too, that, hey, you've tried everything else. Let's try to make a dietary change and start to look at the, the gut brain, you know, health relationship and see what's going on with that. And then That's the fifth so major awesome. cause is what we talked about already, which is that psychological side of things. We do a lot on the psychological things because personally, I feel like that's such a big area that if I can convince you that everything's going to be better and, you know, what you're feeling is you're not crazy, it's actually happening. That's going to go so much farther than me telling you to stare at the wall and shake your head back and forth 20 times over the course of this next 10 minutes. You know, that's yeah, that's yeah. not not going to have nearly the effect of if I can tell you that everything that we're going to do is working, you're getting better, you're doing things correctly. We tell all of our patients that come in, PCS, workers comp, that they need to journal how they're feeling. Nobody ever has to see it. Uh, a lot of times I tell them to put it on a notes section at the end of the day. Once you get it out of your system, once you get that kind of delete it. Yeah. It doesn't need to be seen by anybody unless you want it to be seen by us. And it's just a way of taking kind of that above the shoulders acidity that comes in a day-to-day basis and getting it yeah. put down on paper. Um, yeah, help with the processing. That's a great yeah. idea. We partner with a company out of Indianapolis um, called Zen Lab. Uh, they're a yoga studio and they've created a concussion specific yoga for us that we avoid certain head positions, uh, certain That's body awesome. positions. That, yeah, um, it is. And that's been, you know, that's been great. We, we sat there and looked at most of our PCS patients before the partnership. I sent out and said, hey, go to YouTube, go to yoga, find a, it's a way of elevating the heart rate and it's a way of treating that decreased blood flow while still staying safe. You don't want to set, necessarily have somebody who's suffering from dizziness go out and run two blocks and, you know, they get two blocks away from home and can't figure out how to get home. Right. Um, but if they're, <laughs> they're sitting in a chair doing stationary yoga, that's great. Um, mm -hmm. So that partnership, I tell people all the time, you know, I don't get any monetary kickback from it. I don't get any referrals out of it. I sit there and say, hey, this is what I want to build. She said, great, we'll build it. We'll send it to you and it's all virtual. So that's been a huge help for us as well. That's amazing. Excellent. Interesting. Just to rewind for a second, it's interesting you were talking about the neck. Um, mm -hmm. So... I think there's this perception that if you are playing a sport and you're wearing a helmet that you can't get a concussion, right? right. My brother happened to play lacrosse and he sustained several concussions yep. getting checked in the back of the neck with yep. the lacrosse stick. And so it's just interesting to hear you talk about sort of the relation between the neck and the and the brain. Mm -hmm. and and also that misperception is an interesting one. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> right. I tell people a lot with, with our helmets, right? If anybody's trying to sell you a helmet that reduces the risk of concussions, they're just trying to charge you more for the same helmet that's already out there. Wow. The, the helmet testing that goes on in the NFL puts out a huge study each year on all the tests, that are, all the helmets that are available to your high school and college athletes, your youth athletes, and say, hey, here's the top helmet out there. This is the best helmet. It rates the highest. Buy this helmet. What they don't sit there and say is, okay, it's rated against skull fractures. 
So does it do anything to reduce the impact and the shearing forces that happen inside the mid part of the brain? No, but it's really good at keeping you from breaking your skull. And they are, they're fantastic. And helmet technology keeps getting better and better every year. We see fewer and fewer skull fractures, but with the increase in technology and the improvement in helmets, they're now used as weapons because it doesn't hurt as bad. If I run my face into somebody without a helmet on, it really hurts. But if I have a face mask on, it doesn't hurt as bad. So would better neck protection be an answer or there's a There's a lot of research that's done into neck strength and the relationship between neck strength and the reduced risk of concussions. That's also one of the things that they're looking at why females are more susceptible to males uh, because of the decreased neck to the head weight ratio of females versus males. Uh, And then the big hormones that we're looking at is is the new kind of more so what they're saying, why the reason females are more susceptible to males. There is a company out there that's created a collar that, that does decrease the, the cerebral blood flow. So it comes in and presses on the carotid arteries. And I, I won't get much into that one, but that one's, that one's out there. And the idea is, is they're trying to increase the blood-brain barrier, which thought process-wise is fantastic. That is what happens. They're, they're researching why woodpeckers can bang their head against the wall over and over and over again and don't sustain <laughs> concussions. And that's right. They have an increased blood barrier in their brain compared to their skull than we do. Uh, the, the woodpeckers also got a life expectancy of like two years compared yeah. to a human. But, yeah, I... you know, but that's, it's what, that's kind of what they're looking at and they're kind of researching you know, what happens in nature. A lion that sustains a concussion doesn't get to sit in a dark room for two weeks. You know, he's still got to go out and be a lion. You know, yeah. right. So what happens in, you know, what happens in a, uh, a headbutting contest between two deer, you know, how do they not fall over right afterwards and, you know, can't stand up straight, you know? So there's a lot of research of what happens in nature and how we can kind of mimic that in the human brain, but the human brain so much more complex than, you know, yeah. a, a deer or a, a shark that ran into the wall or, you know, whatever it's going to be different. Yeah. So is there, what's the prognosis like for someone going through PCS? Does it ever end? So it does. It does get better. Um, The good thing with with PCS is it's more and more research going into it every year. We look at, not only are we trying to reconnect the neural pathways inside the brain that are affected with their concussion injury, we're also looking at ways that we can sit there and modify things to get us back into our day-to-day basis as quick as possible. Right, so we're looking at writing things down. Even though I don't need to write things down, I always tell patients to write things down. It's better to have it and not need it than need it and not have it. Oh, I've um, learned that. With my brain <laughs> right, <laughs> I write, write things down. down all day, and I'm healthy. You know, I yeah. I have to write things down all day because I'll sit there at the end of the day and go, "That's not good," and I'm the one that's trying to remember everything. So, mm. um, we we look at ways of of getting through the initial symptom recovery, and we we look at with our patients telling them that you know working with your brain, not against your brain. Your brain is always going to win. Always, it controls everything. So we get patients that come in and say, well, I can get through this, no problem. You know, I don't need to take breaks during work. Great, you may not, but your brain does. And you're gonna find out quickly that, you know, you're gonna get headaches, you're gonna get dizzy, you're gonna get nauseous, you're gonna get all these increasing symptoms of the way the brain sits there and says, hey, we're doing too much, let's rest. (laughs) <laughs> right, and you guys, too. you guys have both understood that, and you know how that goes, yeah. right? So, yeah. uh, you know, we push a lot of working with the brain, not against the brain, because if you work with the brain, you're both going to get to the top of the hill a lot faster than if you're trying to drag the brain up the hill. Yeah, and in a lot of ways, a brain injury of any sort is the ultimate lesson in having to listen to your body. Correct. Because 
can't beat the brain. <laughs> right. You take things for granted. Like, you know, as me, somebody who's not recovering from a brain injury, I don't think about every time I get out of the car, if I need to go to the trunk, I can just stand up and turn to my left. Somebody dealing with a brain injury or a chronic vertigo, you know, I, I had a patient in here who would not turn left. And she was three years post-injury. And every time she would have to turn left, getting out of our office, you walk out the door, you take a left, you take another immediate left to get straight out to the uh, the lobby. Every time she walked out for our first two to three weeks, she would forget something. She would turn around, say, oh, I forgot that. Okay, no, I've got it. And I have my phone, my keys, my wallet. And then she would turn to the right to go out the door. And then she would turn to talk to me and then turn to the right, you know, 360 to get back out the door. And you yeah. didn't it's realize like that's what she's doing. Be Turner, if that's the case. <laughs> right, right, and that's that's something we'd looked at. It's like, hey, you've avoided turning left for how long in your life? Are we ever going to be able to turn left again? Hopefully, but you've avoided yeah. turning left for three years. Wow. And she didn't realize it. She's like, well, now that you say that, anytime I've gotten out to get to my trunk, I walk around the front of my car to come to the back. Huh. Okay. Well. See, this is why we're here is because I'm going to point out some of these things that you're doing and we're going to try to fix them. You know, it's it's things that compensation, things that have come up that you don't think about. Huh. That's amazing. I mean, I will say having had vertigo, I it comes and goes. Yeah. But when I when I get it, I know exactly where I my eyes will go to trigger it. Mm -hmm. And I, I do sort of adapt around it as much right. as possible like even when i'm getting out of bed in the morning mm -hmm. like i will turn my head a certain way so that i'm not triggering an episode right. yeah so a lot of that goes to you know do you ever get better from pcs yes and no right are the symptoms still going to be there potentially you're going to deal with these for a long time if not forever but we learn what triggers that we have we learn that i avoid that eye position up there as much as i can because i know that mm -hmm. that's going to happen we also look at what can we adapt in our day-to-day -day lives where, you know, do I put everything on the third shelf up in the cabinets if I'm looking back and looking at the third shelf makes me dizzy? Oh, yeah. Or do I move things down to the second shelf? Do I move things down to a cabinet underneath the counter? You know, things that are compensation mechanisms that they may not have even thought about that, you know, I get dizzy every time I flip my head forward to put my towel around my hair. Well, how about we avoid flipping our head forward and we lean our head to the side? And it's right, things yeah. that, okay, well, I, you know, I haven't been dizzy for two weeks because I stopped throwing my head forward to dry the underneath side of my hair before throwing it back. Clearly, I have to deal with the same thing of where I throw my hair forward and dry everything. But gorgeous locks. Exactly. I work hard on this hairdo. And at the same time, you know, you start to look at things that aren't thought of. A lot of what we do, we sit there and put activities of daily living into clear view and say, hey, look, these are some things that may cause you symptoms. And a lot of times with our PCS patients, they sit there and say, I mean, I feel like I'm crazy because every time, you know, I sit there and explain something to somebody else, they're like, that's not normal. That doesn't happen. So mm -hmm. forever, you know, they've sat on those feelings and sat on those, those things and say, well, everybody does it. One of the workers' comp patients that we had, the reason she got referred to us is because twice throughout the week before coming to us, she would walk down a certain hallway at the office. It was 100 feet, doors on both sides, nothing on the walls. She would get so dizzy by the time she got to the end of it that she had to sit down and they found her falling asleep in the hallway twice. And they said, okay, something's not right. And that's when she said, well, I hit my head on the door frame the other day. And every time I walk down this one hallway, it triggers my symptoms and I feel so dizzy that I feel like I'm going to pass out. So I sit down and, and ended up falling asleep twice. So, you know, it, it's things that people don't think about that are, that's not normal. You know, yeah. when I walk yeah. down a hundred foot hallway, I don't hallway? fall asleep at the end. What's that? Was it the lighting in the hallway? I'm curious. It was, it was a mixture of everything. It was a narrow hallway. It was the doors were the same colors as the wall. So when the doors were open, every other one, it kind of had that like checkerboard pattern that looked through it. 
the uh, the fluorescent lightings on it. There were there was no curvature to the hallways, so it was kind of like you know the shining, never-ending hallways that you start looking at in all your horror <laughs> movies that keep going, uh, staying on tune with Halloween and all that. Um, you know, it, it it was just a mixture of everything with the sensory overload that she's trying to get her bearings during this you know this walk and and a lot. It feels like the walls are kind of caving in around her because. She, her symptoms and her systems are starting to overload because everything's repetitive. She had a lot of visual motion sensitivity, so moving in general made her nauseous and dizzy already. Now you add the fact on that her body's trying to connect, okay, visual discrepancies where, did I see this door before? I haven't seen this one yet. I've seen that one. Oh, what about that one up there? Okay, somebody moved up there. Now what do I do? You know, everything kind of overloads her, and, and by the time she got to the hallway, it was just too much for her. Yeah, I can relate to that feeling 100%. Mm -hmm. That's what I felt like a lot in the weeks after my brain injury. Mm -hmm. Um, And amazingly, a lot of institutions like hospitals have hallways like that. And so like I would be asked to like walk down the hallway in the hospital Mm -hmm. and I would go on overload because fluorescent lighting and the checkerboard ceiling and everything's white. And it was and I was like this doesn't seem like it should be a crazy feeling, but it's a crazy <laughs> right. feeling. Right, <laughs> right. And, you yeah. know, it's it's things you don't think of. Like as a clinician that evaluates concussions, I had to stop wearing striped shirts. I wore striped huh. shirts all the time. And, you know, all of my golf polos were all striped shirts. So I wore striped shirts all the time. And I finally had one patient that said, can you take that off? Like, <laughs> you were driving him crazy. I, I'm like, oh. Uh, I mean, you're like, this is not this kind yeah, of right. I'm in the wrong building for this, but you know, it, and it was something that he's like, you know, every time that you move, it's throwing me off because it was a, it was a narrow striped shirt. It was a black and white stripe. And, you know, looking back at it, you're like, man, that was stupid. Why did I wear that? Um, but you, you, things you don't think of that somebody that finally came out and said it, and I'm sure, I mean, he was not the first patient that I evaluated. And I'm sure there have been other patients that went, man, that guy's a jerk wearing those shirts. So it's just something you don't think about. Um, And it kind of opens your eyes on what is really going on with with patients that you don't think about, you know, the invisible injury. Nobody can experience what they're experiencing. I tell patients all the time, you know, this is your injury. I can't tell you how you feel. My job is to validate what you're telling me. So my job is to sit there and say, okay, here are the objective findings for your subjective complaints. Mm-hmm. Here's when somebody comes up to me and says, what's wrong? You can sit there and say, I have, you know, I have a vestibular ocular reflex that's wrong, or I have visual motion sensitivity, or I have visual field descriptions or disruptions, you know, because the, the, the optic nerve or my ocular motor nerve is impaired and I don't have full control over my eye movements. You know, I can sit there and say, hey, look, here are the problems that we're seeing. Everything that you're telling me is on this paper. Not you're you're yeah. not crazy. It's not in your head. You're not manifesting system. You know symptoms. Yeah, they're right here. I mm-hmm. know when I had um, cognitive rehab was the biggest thing for me. And at one point, I felt crazy. I felt like maybe I was making stuff up just so I could stay home from work longer. Right. And I know that wasn't me. And, I like to work. Yeah. And there's and having someone be like, "Yes, this is because of your brain injury. Mm-hmm. This is something we can do something with." was right. so um, freeing and almost made me feel like there was hope. You know, like right. I didn't feel like there was hope before that. You know, I was going to say almost the same thing. I wish that I had had more practitioners say to me, I'm listening to you mm-hmm. and what you're telling me does not make you crazy. <laughs> yeah. Because I think that's a very easy thing. You know, like it's all internal. You're the one thinking about it. You're the one feeling it. Nobody can see it or feel it for for you. So 
So having to express it out loud and sometimes it sounds bizarre is a really hard thing to do. So the right. more we can tell people you're not crazy and also you're being listened to. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, gaslighting is such a huge thing that happens all, all throughout healthcare. Unfortunately, yeah. the way the healthcare model in the United States is shifting is if you can't make me money, you get out of my office. Yeah. You know, and with concussions, there's not a whole lot of money in it. It's you can the the initial evaluation's got big money, and then every subsequent evaluation after that, there's not a whole lot into it. So if you get like a uh, a patient that's coming back two to three times, where's the money in that? Get out of my office. But with us, the good thing of you know being the athletic trainer, we do the full evaluations. So our initial evaluation, I'm with you know I'm with our patients for an hour to an hour and fifteen minutes. I go through everything from concussion education to our diagnostic testing to, okay, here's the treatment plan that we have. And I tell all our patients all the time, you know, as long as Doc and I are on the same page, we'll have a treatment plan moving forward. He comes in and he does completely independent neurological exam to us. I tell him the background of the history. I tell him what, you know, what the, the patient, you know, he's a 16-year-old football player from such and such high school. First concussion, here's the SCAT-5. He does a neurological exam. He says, okay, this is what I see. Yep, that's what we saw too. What do you want to do moving forward? Here's the treatment plan that I want to do. And I tell patients all the time, as long as he and I are on the same page, we have our treatment plan moving forward. Mm. We've seen 141 patients. We'll see our 141st patient here in a little bit. Uh, Since September of last year, we've been on the same page 140 times. You know, so it's reassuring to the patient that sits there and says, hey, we don't as clinicians don't argue. You know, if he's got something else, obviously he wins. He's, He's the MD, I'm not. But at the same time, he trusts the evaluation that I do, and he trusts the evaluations that he sees and says, hey, you've been doing this for so long. You've done the evaluation. I trust what you want to do. I'll sign off on it. Let's talk about it if things change. If yeah. things don't go well, you know, we, don't, we try not to medicate patients unless they absolutely have to, unless they come in and they're not sleeping. You know, we try to avoid medications at all costs because medications are going to slow the brain down. When we slow the brain down, there are times where the brain doesn't want to pick back up. And we spend more time trying to fight the electrical impulse in the brain, trying to speed that back up than anything else. So we try to avoid medications at all costs. You know, I had one last question mm-hmm. of, do you ever see that the PCXS diagnoses then transform into something else? Do you ever see any other long-term effects from these concussions? Not, I know I've seen like occipital neuralgia and stuff yeah, like that. We talked a little bit about occipital neuralgia. Um, the uh, we have very few cases where I have actually dealt with occipital okay. neuralgia, and I'll tell you that what we've done is Doc does Doc is a physiatrist, so he's a physical medicine doctor. He's done injections, nerve injections on occipital neuralgia. Uh, I had one patient that absolutely loved him and said everything felt great, and I've had one patient that said, "Hey, that was not the way to go." So um, my my dealings with occipital neuralgia are very limited. It doesn't change what I do in terms of my treatment plans or, you know, the only thing it does is we avoid any manual therapy in that area for, you know, for 72 to to 96 hours to kind of give that that steroid injection a chance to work and get into the system. So we'll avoid all cervical manual therapy in that area for that time frame. Um, You know, we we do work well with um, if PCS symptoms don't get better. You know, it's not our clinic's not the end of the road. We do have something that's available to us in our practice called PRTMS. So it's it's a transcranial magnetic stimulation. 
Um, if you guys have seen One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest with Jack Nicholson, uh, it's yep. like the great grandson of electroshock therapy. It's a magnet. It's not. It's not painful. Um, transcranial magnetic stimulation has been around forever. It's basically they they send a magnet stimulation into the skull and it kind of dissipates through ever all over the place through everything. With the PRTMS, it's you know programmable and repetitive. So they actually drive it into different cortexes inside the brain tissue itself. It's it's not painful to the patient. And it's basically a way of taking that, you know, the electrical signal that's being sent back and forth between the brain and certain cortexes in the brain, stimulating it. So the brain sits there and says, oh, hey, okay, I, I can repair this neural pathway. I've used this. And they just repetitively stimulate different areas throughout the brain throughout their repetitive treatment program. And it, it speeds the brain, the electrical signals back up. Right now, it's not FDA approved for concussions, but it is approved for uh, depression, anxiety, um, addiction, sleep dif- difficulties, you know, so it's it's relatively new, but at the same time, it's been around for a long time. And we've, we've gotten some patients that go through our clinic that, hey, we have improvement, but it's not to the point where I'm ready to discharge them. There's something we got to do. We We have this available to us. We also work very well with um, neuropsychologists in the area that can do full neuropsych evals on everybody if needed to terms of, you know, kind of that, am I manifesting symptoms because I'm not, you know, not being, the injury itself hasn't been treated properly or, you know, there's been stressors outside of, you know, the injury itself that have caused problem and symptom provocation and symptom increases. Is it, am I manifesting symptoms because I'm not happy with a certain situation or is it psychological? You know, so we use neuropsych testing to figure that out. Uh, we've also developed a pretty good um, group of, of specialists that we've used. You know, we've got neurologists that we can refer to if things aren't right. Uh, if, we, if we're not seeing, you know, the improvement that we want, uh, we've got a good group of behavioral psychologists that we've referred to for, you know, sports psychology, referred to for the outside psychological effect that may be affecting our symptoms themselves. And then we've we've also got a a good uh, vestibular therapy group that we've worked with. With concussions, there's there is a component of vestibular impairments, right? Mm-hmm. My vestibular therapy and vestibular impairments and vertigo is such a broad topic, and it's so big. And and it's there's a reason vestibular therapy is a specialty. There's a reason that that it is handled by. I, all I treat is vertigo, just like all I treat is concussions. With post-concussion vertigo, majority of the time they'll fit into BPPV treatments, right? So benign mm-hmm. positional proximal vertigo. They'll, they'll fit into your Epley's maneuver and your Chamont's maneuver and, and things that are easily done if you're trained in them. But if I'm doing those and, and the vertigo treatments that I'm doing aren't improving, I, I'm not one that sits there and says, I have to handle everything. I mean, if it's out of my scope, hey, I'll refer you over to them. When they can figure out the vertigo and get it treated, we'll come back. If that's all symptoms alleviate when we get rid of vertigo, great. So we've built a pretty good network and in, in relationships throughout the city that we're able to sit there and say, hey, you've, you've gotten to where we're comfortable with. There's still some things we want to work on. We can refer you or, hey, our treatment's not working. Let's figure out what's going on. It's awesome that you have this awesome. sort of integrated approach that pulls in partners mm-hmm. who have obviously specialties in certain areas so that you've got big picture and you've got help yeah. in specific areas when needed. That's great. So Matt, awesome. I, I know you've touched on a lot of really interesting topics and mm-hmm. I'm sure some of our listeners are going to want to try to find you out in social media. Mm-hmm. Where would they be able to find you? So we're on Twitter, uh, Instagram, and Facebook. On Twitter and Instagram, we're at 
at MW Concussion. So at MW Midwest MW Concussion. And then on Facebook, we're the Midwest Concussion Clinic. And it's we're we're a really small operation. I run our social media. I you know I'm our marketing department. So if anybody's got good ideas on marketing, um, <laughs> yeah, let me know. Um, we've got our we've got our graduation T-shirts, and we we post pictures about graduating and all the fun stuff. And but we're always looking for ways to expand and and kind of run our social media. So my like we talked about a little bit off air. My background in the media and marketing was in college. I worked marketing so I could get out the free T-shirt before everybody else. <laughs> that was, you know, that was pretty much it. So we got t-shirts and now I'm kind of, where do we go from here? Because <laughs> I got what I wanted. I got my t-shirts. So let's figure it out. Um, but yeah, M- at MW Concussion on everything. If anybody has questions, follow-up questions, you know, our email is mwconcussion at gmail.com. That again goes directly to me. So if anybody needs anything, anybody wants questions answered, you know, if they need they're not in Northeast Indiana or they're not, you know, within seven hours. Cause that's pretty reasonable round trip to make, you know, if they need evaluated, I'll see them. But outside of seven hours on a round trip, if I can help trying to guide them into, Hey, look into this treatment, look into this evaluation. I will more than happy to help any way that I can, you know, like you guys talked about early on, it's, having a resource to bounce things off of people and having just a community to talk about, to sit there and say, Hey, you know, you're not crazy. It's, it's, it is what's happening. Uh, believe it or not, we've got a big following in um, Canada and then uh, New Zealand. Um, and a lot of New Zealand, there's no diagnosis of post-concussion syndrome. You know, it's, they diagnose them as depression and they throw as many medications at them as they can. So trying to help resources and trying to help, you know, provide information to a lot of our patients and a lot of our group, it's been, you know, kind of eye-opening how throughout the world, you know, all over the world kind of handles concussions differently. And in my opinion, Canada has, has got it the most figured out and that's where I get a lot of my information. And that's kind of the clinic that we modeled after is is uh, very similar to con- uh, complete concussion management out of Toronto. Awesome. And Dr. Marshall, he gives a lot of, of good information. Uh, I try to plug him as much as I can. Um, he's fantastic that he gives a lot of free information out to clinicians. And then Molly Parker PT on Instagram is another great one. Um, they put out a lot of, of free resources to concussion patients that are, you know, dealing with their post-concussion syndrome, acute concussions on Facebook and, or on Instagram and, and Twitter. So uh, I, I am only as good as the information that I'm, that I'm taking in. I'm only as good as the training that I've had. And there are tons of information out there that, you know, don't sit there and suffer in silence. There are a lot of people that can help. You know, it's not normal to wake up and feel the way that, you know, they may be feeling. Uh, there's help. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Matt, for jo- no problem. joining us. Um, thank you for having me. Please, everybody, reach out, like you said, on social media, Instagram, Twitter, um, Facebook. And um, we'll definitely put all those resources in our show notes as well. Perfect. Perfect. Thanks, Matt. Thank you guys for having Thanks, me. Appreciate Matt. it. Thanks for joining us on the Making Headway Podcast. For more information and show notes, visit makingheadwaypodcast.com. Subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform and leave us a review. Check us out at Making Headway Podcast on Facebook and Instagram and share with your friends. Catch you next time. All topics are intended to be used for educational and entertainment purposes only. The podcast is not to be used as a substitute for medical advice. Always consult with your healthcare provider for any issues or treatment considerations you may have. For our full legal terms, please see our website at makingheadwaypodcast.com.